I'd invite you to open up to Psalm 33 this morning. That's where we're going to be. For those of you who may be new, uh, we've been working through the Psalms this summer and just looking at, really looking at God and God's revealed Himself as our lover. And the series is called Smitten and we're looking at Smitten by a Lover Who and just different characteristics and attributes of God. This is one I've been waiting for for a long time because this morning is Smitten by a Lover Who Loves. That's probably pretty obvious to us that, of course, a lover would be loving. But we're going to look intently this morning at the love of God and what that's about. If you're in Psalm 33, what I want to do is read the first five verses and just listen in or follow along. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone from the back can get you a Bible for sure. It says this, Psalm 33, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, we're going to be focusing on the steadfast love of the Lord this morning. But those first four verses in particular, I just want to draw attention to as a picture of how and why we do worship. Uh, One of the things that it says um, is the idea of playing skillfully and new songs and loud shouts. And these all can inform our worship. If churches love to fight about nothing else, they love to fight about how to worship God which is really nonsense if you think about it. Uh, we are given some clues in Scripture. We're to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Those are two giant guidelines of how to worship God. And then throughout the Scriptures, the Psalms were really the songbook or the hymnal for the church of God and have continued to be so for centuries. So we can pick up our cues from that. And I love that there's the idea of loud shouts being a part of worship. There's other psalms, of course, that are intimate and that draw near. I love the idea, and the band talks about this often. The worship team, as we lead in worship, we talk about the idea that we are to be playing skillfully. We're to do everything as unto the Lord, right? So students, that means you're to do your homework as unto the Lord. Your parents may want you to do it, and so you should obey them in the Lord. That's that's the right thing to do. But the way you do homework is going to translate to the way that you do paper routes, if they still had them. Uh, or how you do how you work it in and out. Let's contextualize a little bit. Um, or how you're eventually going to parent, and how you're going to continue to be a friend, and how you're going to be as a citizen of this country. How you're going to be on your job. We're to do everything that we that we do with excellence befitting a king. And so surely worship ought to be something that we do that is skillful and fresh, great, not thrown together, not status quo. And what we want to do as a, as a community of faith here um, is be learning new things. And I think the team does a great job of bringing up new songs. One of the things you may not have known, Rob didn't explicitly point this out like he has in the past, but we just sang Psalm 36. Your love, O Lord, is taken directly from Psalm 36. You can go look it up later, but you can just jot Psalm 36 down sometime. When I'm reading through the Psalms, sometimes here's what I'll do. Uh, my other Bible, not this one that I preach from, but my other Bible is filled with song titles at the heading of Psalms. 
Because I'll be going along, I'm like, oh, this is a uh, this is a Chris Tomlin song that we sing. Oh, here's a Crowder tune. We love this one. And I'll just write the name of that worship tune that we do. It's taken right out of the scriptures. And it's really cool to just be singing scripture. I had a conversation uh, this week with someone who was complimenting our children's ministry. And they said, man, my child is in the grocery store and they're just singing scripture. And she made this comment. She said, isn't it true that if I were doing that in, in Safeway, cruising around singing the word of God, what would people do? They might tell her to hush. They might be annoyed by that. But there's something about the voice of a child singing God's word in Safeway. Isn't that beautiful? That's just carrying on the worship service throughout the week. So we're not really talking about worship per se, but here it is built right into the psalm that we're looking at of why and how we do what we do um, here at Neighborhood Bible Church. What we're really talking about is the steadfast love of God. I've got the word forever up on the screen because that's what it is. The love of God is a forever kind of love. That's what steadfast means. It means it's never, ever, ever going away. Kids, I have a little project for you. If you have some paper, we have coloring paper in the back. Um, but uh, a lot of times when kids stay in for the service, we like to let them uh, you know, have some notes. The adult way of taking notes, uh, by the way, is to pull out your, your bulletin and your sermon notes and kind of fill in some blanks. But one of the kid ways of taking notes that I would challenge you to do, kids, is this. We're talking about the love of God this morning. What I would invite you to do, even if you just have a pencil, we have brand freshly sharpened pencils, thanks to Sophie Pang. Where's Sophie? You guys have no idea. There, there's just, there's just a crew of like church mice that come in and do all sorts of things in here that the body never really recognizes, but they're just there. You have a sharpened pencil this morning because of Sophie uh, and others who, who, who do that. But kids, even if you just have a pencil, color what the love of God looks like. Okay, You just draw a picture of what you think the love of God looks like. You can kind of listen. I know you guys can multitask because you've been raised around technology. So multitask, color, and listen to me at the same time. Can you guys do that? Yes. All right, love it. Love it. All right. Any discussion about love really ought to begin and include and really find its center in God. Now, I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit today because we're sitting in a church. But I'm not just talking about a Bible verse that talks about the love uh, of God. I'm talking about love, period. I would venture to guess the average person, when they think of the word love, their first thought, their gut instinct doesn't rush into church and worship and Bible and God. I don't know that to be true, but I would guess not. I think love, sometimes people think of other places and they, they pin it on things. They might rush to a wedding picture. They might rush to a club. They might rush to a full heart or a broken heart, depending on where they are in life right now. But I don't know that they rush to God, but any discussion of love really ought to begin with God. Now, any discussion of the love of God must begin with what He's revealed. I've just told you to turn to Psalm 33. You can leave your finger there or you can find it real easy by opening your Bible roughly to the middle. Turn to 1 John, far to the right of your scriptures. I didn't put this in your notes, so I want you to look at this with me. Look at 1 John for a moment. 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, what we do is we get to see what God has revealed about His love. Give you a second to turn there. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Here we go. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me pause there for one second. This is a massive statement. God is love. I think as a Christian for a long time, I take that statement for granted. I know that He's revealed that about Himself. I would say to that statement, of course God's love. But that's a massive revelation of what God is like. Think about people that have worshipped gods, and I use the word plural, and I use it little g, not talking about real gods, but false gods, throughout the centuries. Gods range from vengeful warrior gods, vindictive gods, tree gods, sun gods. Here we're revealed by God Himself, God is love. Now, culture's done something with that, haven't they? They've taken that and they've, they've kind of flipped it around to say, love is God. I look around our culture and I think to myself, love is God is a true statement for a lot of our culture, for a lot of people. Making love as a God is a terrible God, which we'll see in a little bit. What is meant by love? And if you just went up to a person on the street and you said, what does love mean? What do you think? I mean, just think about the answers that would come to you. Again, here's where I think it would hold true that they don't rush to God. I don't know that a lot of people rush to the Lord. But but I think here's what some people might say. It might be what makes me feel good, what moves me. It's that, you know, and people would start to stammer probably trying to describe love. If you were to write down a definition of love right now, what would you write? Not by show of hands, but just think about that for a second. Someone comes to you and say, what is love? And you would have to start to think and wrangle through that. Some would say this, it can't be known. It's not really something that, uh, that we can put our finger on. It's, it's different things for different people. It's the, same, it's the same kind of logic in a way that I hear really with God. There's, there's some people that say that same thing about God Himself, which is interesting because God says, I am love, and people apply the same logic to love as they apply to God. Well, you can't really know. It means different things to different people. People say that about God. People say that about love, I would imagine. Here's what I did. I googled the love of God, and the first several images that came up I want to just show you on the screen here for a second. Uh, what, what this is, essentially... Um, are just what Google reached out into the internet and found as the love of God. Now, this this is actually a pile of sand um, in in someone's hand that's kind of creatively shaped like a heart. Okay, um, that's really all that is. Now, I want to say a little preface here at the start. It's hard to draw the love of God. You kids who are undertaking this mission, you're just brave. You're brave kids to try and draw the love of God. Uh, and I understand these are creative attempts at it, but just look at these images for a second. Um, this is the love, the the heart of God, right? The love of God drawn out on the sidewalk, right? So there's the the, the words. Um, this happens to be a hole in the cloud, uh, you know, in, in the clouds that you see blue sky behind. That kind of is shaped like a heart, right? It doesn't really capture the love of God, but this this is where people are kind of going with this. Um, this is presumably a Bible. I think we're getting closer. That's good that there's a Bible, I think, in the picture. And it's creatively shaped, you know, in the form of a heart. Um, that's just a heart with the word God is love. Uh, here's a picture of someone, uh, presumably Jesus, giving a giant bear hug to someone. And there are hands in the background. There's a dove. That would all kind of represent the Trinity. There's a rainbow, lots of clouds, and a cool signature. So here's the, here's the point of these images. 
to try and capture the love of God. What does the love of God mean? In a way, someone could say, this is what the love of God means to me. And many of us children of the 70s had images like this over our fireplace or the hands. Any of you have just the hands that were there? And we have these images, and these aren't bad things necessarily, right? But they don't really capture what the love of God is. It's a, it's a huge topic to try and undertake in one message this morning. But it's awesome that we have revelation of what the love of God is. Now, you may not know what this is, but I do because it was sitting at my breakfast table one, one, one morning. This is, um, this is syrup on a pancake. This is called having pancakes with your syrup. And, uh, there, there are two kinds of people in this room. There are those who enjoy Pure, 100% maple syrup, usually imported from Canada. Raise your hand if you're of that variety. Okay? They're the wrong people. (laughs) You're all wrong. I try to like that. I think that would be so cool to eat the syrup right out of a tree from Canada that's been bottled up and is sitting in front of me. Time and again, I try to like it. I don't. I mean, just give me Aunt Jemima or the just the log cabin. I mean, just give me the high fructose corn syrup with the coloring, the caramel coloring. Give it to me. That's what I want on my pancakes. Here's, here's why I bring this picture up. There's a point. Sometimes people take love and they just turn it into syrupy sentimentality. It's just mushy, gushy, whatever. It slaps on a Hallmark card really, really well. Brings a tear to your eye. But it's sentimentality. Now you put that in the hands of, of childlike beings. All of us are childlike beings, no matter our age, because we, we do childish kinds of things sometimes. And if a little is good, a lot must be better. Now, I want to finish this picture for you. This happens to be the pure, 100% syrup. Now, aside from the vast cost of this breakfast, how does this taste to, to most of you? I mean, unless you're insane, yeah. Unless you've been deprived of sugar and you'll get it whatever way you can, this is disgusting on multiple levels. Even the good kind of syrup, this would be disgusting. But if, if love is just sentimentality, if it's just this syrupy, sweet, mushy, uh, we can't really define it kind of a thing, and people say, well, a little's good, a lot must be better, then someone is turned off to love, someone is turned off to the love of God, because that's all that it is. I think people have walked away from the church and are still gone from the church because this is what they got shown the love of God is like. This is not what the love of God is like. The very next psalm, if we were to read on from Psalm 33 to Psalm 34, where it says, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. I love that visual image. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, It's not this. It's not this. And I think people have been, have been duped into believing that's what it is. I listen to a ton of popular radio and songs and just what's hitting with people in their heart. And a lot of people are duped by a syrupy, sentimentality kind of love and then are, 
are bitten by it, and then they fall right back into it again, over and over and over. The most devastating form of this is taking it all the way to the altar and then getting a divorce and breaking that covenant and doing it again and doing it again. And if you were to look back on someone who's been married seven times and see the wake of destruction, if you, if they could do something over, I think they would say, man, I wish I had a better handle on my love life. Wish I knew what love was. <clears throat> this is an image that I think is more accurate, and I understand it's pretty graphic, but it's real. Listen and look at 1 John chapter 4, moving on. After it says, God is love, look at what it says in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. That means to show. Was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The reason we have to look at disgusting images like this that rip our heart and rend our mind to think about the suffering that was, that was undertaken is because it shows, it demonstrates, it manifests what love is like. It's not a plate full of syrup. It's not even a flowery picture of Jesus just giving you a hug. It's God sending His Son and at massive ultimate cost paying the way for us to be made holy and be in relationship with Him at the cost of His Son Jesus. If I don't put this up front and in the center and proclaim the gospel at the very heart of what what the love of God is like, I think it could be missed. I thought about all the different things of the love of God that the Bible reveals, and we're going to get to some of those. But but I think if, if we're left with this message of God is love, and then all these benefits come to me, without really getting the whole gospel message, we're not being honest. It, it, even, it even may distract from what the honest message is. God's love can actually raise some complex and disturbing questions that, uh, that, that arise. Let me throw out a couple that come to my mind and probably have rolled through your mind if you've thought about God is love and what that really means and looks like in our fallen world. If God is love, then why? Why is there evil and tragedy and suffering and injustice in the world? And if that's there, why in such great measure if God is love? If God is love, why does He allow His own people to suffer? And there again, so much suffering. The Israelites, the Jewish nation that God chose, is is a nation marked by suffering. The church, God's... God's chosen people in the, in the new covenant. We are marked as a people who suffer. To follow Jesus is to be persecuted. Why is that if God's loving? And then finally, if God is loving, then why would He send anyone to hell? Ever wrangled with some of these questions before? I hope you have. I hope you've wrestled with these before. 
I want to tell you a quick story that once again has a point. Went whitewater rafting a couple of years ago, and we're in a raft, and we have a guide, and we're cruising along, paddling along, and at one section they take pictures of you and goad you into buying them because they're such cool pictures. We're paddling along in this raft, and as you're paddling along as a novice, what I know is this. If I was in that raft alone with my family, I might well have killed them. Because you see, there are undercurrents happening, and there are massive boulders that are there. And as you're paddling along, you hear the guide shouting uh, different kinds of things. He sees and understands there's deadly parts of this river, parts that could really mess you up. And so his voice rises and falls in different kinds of cadences. And you kind of figure out, well, I really should paddle hard right now. There's times in the journey as you're, as you're paddling along and he's kind of shown you some, some technique where, where you're, you're paddling and, and it actually gets where you're, you're, you're engulfed in white water and you can't even see really what's going on. But you press on in the journey. The worst thing that you could possibly do, this is us making it through that section and when he's saying paddle here, we're a little bit more relaxed. The worst thing you could do, I would say, as a whitewater rafter, and if that whitewater raft represents kind of our journey with God, is to cruise along, sail along, with a glib little smile on your face, not understanding the danger, not understanding the battle. If these questions come along and they frighten you or they scare you or you go, gosh, I don't know if I have great answers for that as a Christian, why would God send anyone to hell? then what happens is you're cruising along in this and you haven't, you haven't figured out how to deal with this massive boulder and it can just topple you in a heartbeat. And like Jesus telling parable about different kinds of seed, you, you can have no roots that go down and know what it is when the storms blow that you've got an anchor that holds. I would challenge you to not treat these lightly not quickly dis dismiss these kinds of questions with a quick little verse. God has intentionally put, I believe in His infinite wisdom, He has put passages that seem to contradict each other. Have you discovered this in the Bible yet? I mean, they just seem to be opposed to each other. And you go, God, how can those be true? And sometimes what we do is we get in our camp and we throw out our little verse and if people are wise enough and discerning enough with the Scriptures, they could say, yeah, but what about these verses over here that seem to counter that? And if all you've been trained to do is just toss out an easy Christian answer to some of these things, what happens is a professor your freshman year of college can come along and fire some bullets at you and you've got no roots and blow your Christian faith away. I don't want that for us. I don't want that for our children. I don't want that for our youth ministry to not equip our kids on how to paddle through this. How to tell them, you're going to be engulfed in white water. It's going to seem crazy like there's no hope. God's in control. And to keep paddling. There aren't easy answers to these and other questions about God. And I don't want to stand up here and make it seem like there are. But there are answers. God is a God of truth. And God is a God of revelation. And as the love of God is put out to us, and we decide to dig a little bit deeper and not settle for syrup, we, we, we start to di discover dimensions of God that we had no idea existed in the first place.
and that carry us through in the dark night of the soul like syrup never, ever will. We must look at these uh, questions biblically and think critically about these. I'm going to offer a couple of wrong answers to these uh, that I didn't put in your notes, but you can jot them down. You can look them up later uh, if you would like. But these are some wrong answers to the questions that I raised. I was in brushing my teeth the other morning, and my five-year-old walks around the corner, and she declares to me, Dad, hot means beautiful. I said, hot means beautiful? She said, yes. I said, really? I said, how did you discover this? And she goes, I just knew it. Or I don't remember exactly how she responded, but she's telling me this, that hot means beautiful. And I'm thinking, wow, she has older siblings that use this term, and my five-year-old now knows this. Now, one of the things I do for entertainment is go to one of my favorite restaurants. I know it's a different kind of restaurant than other places, but Taco Bell, okay? Taco Bell... It saw me through some really, really poor years in college. And the loyalty now that I can afford more expensive meals is there. Because I just there's still a good feeling. Don't eat the meat. Do not eat the meat at Taco Bell. But there's lots of other things, good things to eat there. While at Taco Bell, uh, a couple of years ago, I discovered a, a whole new layer of joy and fun while sitting in this uh, multicolored restaurant. They began to put catchy slogans on their sauce. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken the time to read these, but they're fantastic. I love reading because it personifies Taco Bell sauce, which for a long time now I've had a friendship with. And I'm reading, I'm reading the Taco Bell sauce, and I, I came across one um, that I particularly liked, liked, and it happens to be a hot sauce. Okay, So it's hot. Keep that word in mind. Um, can anyone read this from here? I didn't think so, so I took a picture of it. Um, here's what it says. It says, sometimes I crave myself. Is that wrong? Now, I thought that was so funny that I just, I laughed and I actually, I'm not, is it stealing? I took this from Taco Bell. I'm like, this is, this is going to be used someday. And this actually sits uh, on my desk. And you know what it reminds me? There's other lessons. There's all kinds of lessons in here. It actually reminds me to put the self to death every single day. So it's a good little reminder of that. But here's why I bring this up. If you're a Taco Bell sauce, it's not wrong to crave yourself because you're really, really good. Okay. But the Bible makes it crystal clear that as human beings, what we have is a propensity, an ongoing propensity to crave ourself. Isn't that true? It's called selfishness most places in Scripture. You'll find it other places, the flesh. But this is where we seek to please ourselves, serve ourselves, make comfortable ourselves, make the name of ourselves great and lift it up. And that's exactly opposite of what God desires for us. Now, take this idea of selfishness and apply it to a fallen mind creating an image for themselves of what the love of God is like. Are you tracking with me right now? We have sinful, selfish human beings. We're going to discover what the love of God is like. What form or shape do you think it's going to take? It's going to take on what I think love should be like. Here's a clue for us all. Here's a hint for us all. Any input that I could put on to God, God's love would taint God's perfect love. Any way that I would take myself and go, here's what I think it should be, will taint it. 
Here's what I'd venture to guess. If all of us created a love in our own image, we'd be able to tell each other's stories a little bit from it. Because one of you would start to, to shape the love of God to look like a certain way that would have guarded against a way that you were really hurt. If you were abandoned by a, by a father as a child, the love of God would be heavy on a non-abandoning kind of love, wouldn't it? And so, and so it would, it would take shape for kind of, kind of our own story and where we've been hurt. But for us to inject our kind of love onto God always taints it and makes it worse. Here's a quick two wrong answers to the questions I raised about what the love of God raises. The first one is called universalism. Here's the basics of universalism. A person who holds to this tenet would say this, all people will be saved. Because God is love, He cannot condemn anyone. Most, if not many, would go on to say, hell does not exist, and even Satan and his fallen angels, which are demons, will be redeemed. Now, if you are a Bible-reading person, this this ought to be laughable to you. Because the Scriptures over and over and over contradict this. And that's the problem with universalism. Revelation chapter 2, uh, 20 verse 10 says this, And the devil who, has, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be, tor- they will be tormented excuse me, day and night forever and ever. Another group of people that don't want to uh, subscribe to the God is love and what He's revealed His love is like in the Scriptures would be called... Uh, annihilationists, I suppose, or annihilationism. Great word for Scrabble. Lots of points there. Here's what it basically means. God takes believers to heaven and terminates or annihilates or destroys completely others as their punishment. There's no eternal suffering. There's no hell. And other variations and similar storylines kind of branch off of this. But basically it's that, no, 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 not everyone will be saved. There are those who will be saved. That's clear from Scripture. But those who aren't saved, their punishment is just that they cease to exist. Have you heard this before? Okay, there's a, there's a lot of people writing about this and speaking about this. If you have not heard of universalism or uh, annihilationism, that's just fun to say, um, especially in a group of people, uh, you will hear about it. I can assure you of this. If you are dialoguing with people about about God and about eternity, about God being a God of love, you will come across this. These are not new kinds of heresies. They've been around and they recycle over and over. And the Bible and Scriptures speak to them. Revelation 14.11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, here's what I think is happening. These two ideas, and again, there are many branches of it. These two ideas uh, serve to ease the emotion that we all feel when we think about the punishment of the wicked. That's what it's trying to do. It's trying to ease that emotion of, is someone really going to be punished in hell forever? That doesn't sit well with me. I don't like the thought of that. 
They might seek to, to, to ease the emotion of that, but they fail to be truthful. They fail to be faithful to the biblical account, to the words of Jesus, and to the revelation of God throughout all of history. I just want to read for you a verse that you should jot down if you're taking notes. It's Proverbs 27, verse 6. Listen to this. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Kids, remember the story of Judas? How does Judas show his betrayers which one Jesus is? Remember? What does he do? Gives him a kiss. He tells this mob of soldiers, the one that I go up and kiss, that's the rabbi. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Jesus experienced that firsthand. Because Jesus is both loving and completely truthful. Because God the Father is love, we've already seen that, and completely truthful all the time and forever, we're wounded. We're wounded. Jesus talked about hell actually more than anyone else. He described it in Mark 9.48 as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 8 and Matthew 25, he calls it outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13.41, he refers to it as a furnace of fire. He also warned of coming judgment. Luke 13.28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. So much warning in Jesus' message. Did Jesus come with a loving message? Absolutely. Is part of that loving message really, really hard? Yes. Do parents understand this? Of course we do. It's so hard to discipline our kids. Why do we do it though? Because we love them. Far be it from us to, to not love them enough to discipline them, to warn them, to give them really, really hard truths. Matthew 3, verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear the threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn. That's those who are saved. But the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. And finally, in a more... Mark 9.43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. This is a lot of hell talk for a love of God service, isn't it? But, but it would be unfaithful to just talk about syrup to you. I love you far too much. I hope and pray we love our friends and our families and our co-workers far too much than to offer them more and more maple syrup. The forever nature of hell is talked about. I've already read this, but in Mark, uh, Matthew 25, 46, look at it. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Not a quick punishment and then you don't have any recollection. But the righteous to eternal life... Curious that the same Greek word for eternal, 
which means perpetual, everlasting, forever, is used to describe both the rewards of heaven in this passage and the punishment of hell. Meaning this, those who would say, no, 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 the punishment's only for a blink and then it's just no more. They would be forced into saying, then I guess the reward is the same thing. Because it's the same Greek word used there. I wanted to show you wrong answers to these because I think you're going to come across them if you haven't already. If these kinds of questions scare you or you don't know how to answer, aren't we to be ready to give an answer for the hope that exists within us? Wouldn't it be foolish to just be cruising along thinking we're on the jungle cruise at Disneyland and there's no danger? There's no boulders? Of course we would. I want our people, I want you, I want individuals, I want families to be prepared for this. To know these things. They're not only wrong answers, they're actually demonic because they offer a false hope. These and others offer a false hope if an epidemic went out right now and was, was affecting a vast number of people, somehow I stumbled upon the cure. And I knew that if you got this shot, you were cured from this. You will not die. You will get cured. And I tell all my friends here, and we go out and we're trying to vaccinate as many people as possible, and we come across people who are handing out pamphlets saying you're not really going to die. We wouldn't be neutral to them, would we? We wouldn't say, well, just let them teach what they're going to teach, but we're going to keep doing our thing over here on the side. No, no, no. Because they're offering a false hope. They're preaching a lie to that. People are taking their pamphlet and they're walking away saying, you know what, I reject the vaccine. I already know I'm not going to die. It doesn't affect me. This is the sense we get in the book of Acts. This is the sense we get from Jesus. This urgency saying, warning, judgment of sin is coming. Repent. Turn! Confess! Look at the screen right now. Well, that's kind of a cool feature. <laughs> forgot, forgot to click that one. Now we can get to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God so loved the world that He will do whatever it takes to make us holy. This is seen most unmistakably in the cross of Christ. And when we talk about the steadfast love of God, which we'll return to in a second in Psalm 33, we must get this in our head of what we're talking about so we're not sucking down syrup and believing a lie. Once in Christ, He never will let us go. It's steadfast. It's forever. How different that is than the fleeting human love that so many of us have experienced. I want you to watch this video right now. It depicts that. <laughs> Camp sign-ups are going to be easy this year. Spots are going to go fast. You know, even if you've never been to camp, you can identify with that on some level probably, huh? How different human love is to the love of God. How different it is than this steadfast love that lasts forever and ever. Turn back to Psalm 33, and we'll get there in a second. 
But while you're doing that, I want to just read for you some places that the way ESV translates it is steadfast love shows up just in the Psalms. I'm only going to work my way through a handful of them because we don't have time really for all of them. But the steadfast love of God causes in, in chapter 5 for the psalmist to fear Him. Listen to the range of emotion. Listen to the range of life that the steadfast love of God covers. In chapter 6, he says, according to your steadfast love, deliver me. Chapter 13 says that I trusted in your steadfast love. Uh, chapter 21, that the steadfast love of God establishes kingdoms, works its way into government and ruling. Chapter 25, according to your steadfast love, forgive me. Chapter 31, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Also in 31, it's been shown to me. Chapter 32, the steadfast love of the uh, of the of God surrounds us. Chapter 36, it's called precious. Chapter 44, we're redeemed by it. Chapter 51, according to your steadfast love, show mercy. And in 59, it says, my God in His steadfast love, will meet me. And here's my question as I read through some of those. Whether you did it outwardly as an expression or inwardly in your heart, I think some of you are nodding your head to this. Some of you are welling up with tears with this, thinking, yes, that's what the steadfast love of God means to me. And others of you sit unmoved by it. And you go, that's not really me. There was once a Shakespearean actor who was known far and wide for his one-man show of readings from the classics. He would always end every one of his performances with a dramatic reading of the 23rd Psalm. Each night, without exception, as the actor began, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The crowd would listen attentively. And then at the conclusion of the psalm, they would rise in thunderous applause in appreciation for the actor's incredible ability to bring the verse to life. But one night, just before the actor's customary reading of the 23rd Psalm, a young man from the audience spoke up, Sir, do you mind if I recite the 23rd Psalm tonight? The actor was quite taken aback by this unusual request, but he allowed the young man to come forward and stand front and center on stage to recite the psalm, knowing that the ability of this unskilled youth would be no match for his own talent. With a soft voice, the young man began to recite the words of the psalm. When he was finished, there was no applause. There was no standing ovation as on other nights. All that could be heard was the sound of weeping. The audience had been so moved by the young man's recital that every eye was full of tears. Amazed by what he had heard, the actor said to the youth, I don't understand. I've been performing the 23rd Psalm for years. I have a lifetime of experience and training, but I've never been able to move an audience as you have tonight. Tell me, what's your secret? The young man humbly replied, Well, sir, you know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. There's a massive difference to reading the scriptures, knowing the author, being in relationship with the author, and hearing about the steadfast love, and being able to tie it 
to things that He has shown in your life versus reading it as just another book. Ephesians is a book that we walked through not long ago and there's a great passage here in chapter 3 that's so full and so rich. But in your notes today, I've got some handouts and these are just looking at what what are the dimensions of the love of God? We see some of the dimensions right here in Psalm 33. Ephesians 3 says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp this love that's found in Christ. The first one is this. The love of God is wide enough to include everyone. Look in Psalm 33 at verses 13 to 15. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. 1 Timothy chapter 2.4 says this, that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. All people are before the eyes of God, and God truly does extend His love and mercy to every living being. That's why. John 3.16, we mentioned already, 2 Peter 3.9 is in your notes. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you know what this means? It means that you're living in sin... If you ever get to a place where you say, I'm in, and I'm just going to coast until God comes back and takes His own. It means that if your heart isn't breaking for the all that He says here, elsewhere in Scripture we're commanded to pray for all. If we don't have a vision that lifts out and sees every living being, and wonders, I wonder if that person's been touched by the love of God. I wonder if they're saved then our heart isn't in line with God. It's not in line with God. It's also long enough to last forever. Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Psalm 89.2, your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. It's also high enough to be everywhere. This is a great passage. We used to sing this in high school group. And this is a passage you ought to to memorize because it's a promise from the Lord that has been given to us. For I'm convinced that uh, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That is a great verse. That is a great truth that's been revealed to us. Now, if all you had to hold on to was syrup, and that's what you thought the love of God was, 
It wouldn't carry you through these rough times. You'd never be tested in this way. You would pour it on when it's convenient. You'd leave it in the cupboard, unbeknownst to you and unon your mind at all when you didn't want to think about it. The love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how it keeps coming back to the cross? You see how it keeps coming back to the gospel? It keeps coming back to a virgin birth? It keeps coming back to an excellent sinless life that was lived? keeps coming back to Christ exchanging His holiness and giving it to us because of His death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we talk about it so much as Christians. Finally, Ephesians mentions that it's deep. The deep, deep love of Christ. It's deep enough to meet all of my needs. Psalm 40.11 says this, Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles surround me, too many to count. My sins pile up so high, I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I have lost all courage. You'll find yourself in the Psalms, friends. Every single week, people walk in here with this prayer on their heart. Troubles surround me. I can't even count my sins. They just keep racking up. Romans 5.8, But God showed... His great love for us. Do you get this theme? It's not just about words. It's a demonstration over and over. It's a manifestation. If all we believe is just words on a paper somewhere, we're missing it. God has showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Isaiah 54, 7, With deep compassion, I will take you back. With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. And finally, one that isn't in your notes, but Romans 8.32. Just memorize the whole chapter, people. It's a great chapter. But 8.32 says this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us what? All things. Look in Psalm 33 at verse 18. We wrap up with this. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. Kids, look at the screen. Do you guys remember the question that was asked to Jasmine by this gentleman right here? In this scene? Who's got it? Who's got it? You're a kid at heart. (laughs) Bertha just had a kid, so she gets the answer. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Now, I know that throwing a goofy image of Aladdin up there is a far cry from God, but you know what? When it comes to the love of God, if it's just syrup, there's no, there's no fear of God in that. 
There's also no awesome power that has strength to deliver you from anything in that. It's just syrup. But the love of God, the steadfast, forever, unchanging love of God, reaches into all these different areas of life. It sees us through all these storms, all these pinnacles of life. It's nothing like a summer camp romance. And this picture is an amazing picture of God saying, Do you trust me, son? Daughter, do you trust me? My steadfast love isn't going anywhere. It reaches to the heavens. The dimensions of the love that are found in Christ are as high and as wide and as deep and as long as you could possibly dream or imagine. Think about any loving relationship you've ever had. How big of a part does trust play in that? Take trust away from a loving relationship. What do you have? Separation. Two broken hearts. I believe that as we talk about the love of God, the steadfast love of God, in your groups this week, you can talk about all the implications of this, the outworkings of this. What is our response to be in all of this? But as we talk about it, I think God is saying these same things. Do you trust me? If you have never placed trust in the work of Christ, I would invite you to do that. I would say leave a life of sin, leave a life of selfishness, and come to Jesus. That was His invitation over and over. Come to Me. Children, come to Me. You who are heavy-hearted and burdened and trouble surrounding you, you who are rich and wealthy and the ruling class, come to Me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to Me. Sinner, come to Me. Sinner who thinks he's righteous, come to Me. Admit your faults and failures and acknowledge the purity and holiness of Christ. Let's pray. Band, come on up. God, we want to say thank you as your family this morning, as your people, for revealing your love to us, for showing us what you are like in Christ. God, we thank you that your love is steadfast, that you're not going anywhere tomorrow, that you never abandon us, you never leave us, you never forsake us, and you never sleep. Your eye is always on us. Your heart is always toward us. God, I pray for a humble, repentant people. Those who've walked with you for years and decades, would you make us humble and repentant as your people? Today, we need to leave a life of sin, whether we've never bent a knee and acknowledged you or whether we did that years ago. Afresh today with skillful songs, with new songs, with excellent worship, we want to lift our voices in praise to you, honoring and celebrating your unfailing love that lasts forever. We praise you today for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
We're going to also take up our 